Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah again. Uh, if you're using a church Bible page, 573 and 680 uh, in the large print Bible. Um, and I think we'll read in, read in again from uh, halfway through chapter 8 um, for a reason that, that may or may not become clear uh, in the course of the uh, exposition. So let's read from verse 16 of chapter 8. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. Now Isaiah speaks on his own part in response to that exhortation that has come to him from the Lord. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, 
and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, over the last few Sundays, we've been looking together at this birth announcement in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, to us, a child is born. And we've noted from the gospel according to Matthew and from other places that this promise of the Davidic king, the Messiah, who would sit permanently on the throne uh, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Matthew introduces the beginning of the Lord Jesus' ministry, he very interestingly introduces it with the opening words of Isaiah chapter 9. So, we're left in no doubt by the whole Bible that the promise of Isaiah 7 14, that a virgin would bear a son and he would be Emmanuel, God with us, and that this one who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace is a forepicture, a shadowy picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been trying to answer from this passage and other passages the question, well, how is it that the Lord Jesus is all of these things? How is it that He is a wonderful counselor who guides His people in the darkness? And how is it that He is a, a mighty God, a champion God, a hero God, who delivers and protects His people when they are oppressed? And, and we will come, God willing, next week to uh, the title of Jesus that we're perhaps more familiar with, that He is the Prince of Peace. But it's today's name that I think gives Christians pause sometimes. He is described here in the third name as the Everlasting Father. So, why would that give Christians pause well, it gives Christians pause because we characteristically do not think about the Lord Jesus as the Father. We characteristically think of the Lord Jesus as the Son. The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, the Spirit is the Spirit, and we recognize, however difficult it may be for us to understand these things, that if we mix all this up and confuse them, we've done something serious to our understanding of God. So, why is it that Isaiah looks forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus and speaks of Him not as the everlasting Son, but the everlasting Father. What is going on here? And that is the question that I hope in a little while we will be able to answer. And I say it, there seems to be some tension here because 
for example, what is Mary told? The child that's going to be born is the Son of God. What does Peter confess at Caesarea Philippi? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does the Roman centurion say as he watches Christ die on the cross? Truly, this man was the Son of God. So, there seems to be something of a tension here. How is it? Why is it? Isn't it a little odd that Isaiah looks forward to the ministry of Jesus and thinks of the Lord Jesus as the everlasting Father? Well, I always want to look at things simply, uh, but we are going to look at this relatively simply, although you will have to be the judge of that. And I want to try and do that, first of all, by thinking about the significance of this name. First of all, what would be startling to an early reader of the Old Testament was that the mighty God would actually be called Father. I mean, as Christians, we are probably accustomed to nothing more than the fact that we can speak about God as our Heavenly Father. But if you were to read through the whole of the Old Testament, which I haven't done in the past week, if you were to read through the whole of the Old Testament and look at the places where God is called Father, or the people are called, or even the king is called Son or Children of God, and then quickly leaf over to the New Testament, you would find that between Matthew 5 and the end of Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, there were far more references to God as your heavenly Father and you as one of His children than there are in the 39 books that precede the Gospel of Matthew. So, there's something kind of wow about this, that the very idea of the mighty God, whoever He is, whatever person of the Godhead He might be, there's something really staggering, striking about this fact that He is described as the everlasting Father of His people and the Father of individuals among His people. And it really underscores for us there is there is a privilege about living in the light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that I would be bold enough to say nobody until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ ever experienced. You can look in vain for any ordinary believer, indeed anyone apart from the King, Remember how God says about David, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. So perhaps David could have thought of himself in the light of that promise, but that was a promise given to him as king. So you could search in vain in the Old Testament for a believer, a real true believer who walked with God, who had the instinct within him to address God and say, Abba, Father. It's part of the 
cataclysmic newness that comes with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says he, he brought life and immortality to light in the gospel, but what he also brought to light in the gospel was that through him you could come and breathe that instinctively sweet word, Father. But what is so interesting, what is so significant, is that here it's not applied to the everlasting Father. It's applied to the everlasting Son. Now, we really shouldn't have too much difficulty about that because there are numbers of us in the room who are sons, probably less than 50%, but every male in the room, I presume, is a son, and a smaller percentage of those males have become fathers. So the idea of a son who is a father is not itself an inherent contradiction. What it underlines for us that in relationship to our own father, we are son, but in relationship to our own children, we have become their father. And in a way, it's in that second sense that the Lord Jesus is here being described as the everlasting Father. He isn't being confused with His Father, but what is being said about Him is that to His children, He will be as a Father to them, like Father, like Son that He will be to them. And Jesus actually talks about this in different ways. He will be to us as His children, everything that His eternal Father has been to Him as that Father's eternal Son. So that while in relationship to His Father, there is a filial relationship, in relationship to us, there is a paternal relationship, a fatherly relationship between the Lord Jesus and His disciples. And there are a few very interesting hints about this uh, in the Bible itself. Later on in Isaiah, in the most famous chapter in Isaiah, although not the most famous verse in that chapter, the end of Isaiah 53, Isaiah says this, doesn't he? He will see his seed. He will see his seed. And most of us perhaps know that passage off by heart, but it, it, it may never strike us until we start thinking about it in terms of what Isaiah is saying here, that if he sees his seed, then that's a reference to his people as his children. And there are other little hints in the Bible um, you remember when uh, uh, Jesus is speaking to the disciples in the upper room in John 14, where he says famously, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Philip says to him, well, Jesus, if, if you would just show us the Father, we'd be happy bunnies. Just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Remember how Jesus replies, Philip, he says, 
have you been with me so long and, and you, still, you still don't see it? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, he's not, he's not inviting Philip to confuse himself with his Father. But, but what he's saying is, as John makes clear at the beginning of the gospel, that he is the one who was in eternity face to face with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, face to face with God, towards God is the preposition, face to face with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the one who was face to face with God became face to face with us, so that in his face, in his character, in his disposition, in his love, in his sacrifice for them, there, there was nothing unfatherly in Jesus. And the great news is there is nothing un-Jesus-like in the Father. So, you get these little hints that the Son, with respect to those who are His disciples, actually becomes their Father. And it's, I think, interesting, and this is why we read in, from Isaiah chapter 8, that those words that Isaiah speaks, you notice them in verse 18 of chapter 8, and he's speaking about himself, and either his own children, Shear Yashub and Maharshal Hashbaz, or perhaps those who are his inner circle of friends and disciples. And he turns to the Lord and he says, Here am I and the children you've given me. Now, if you know your New Testament better than you know your Old Testament, you, you've read these words before. They are picked up by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 when he's speaking about the way in which the Lord Jesus took our flesh and became our brother in order to be our Savior. And then he runs off several passages from the Old Testament that he then sees as fulfilled in Jesus. He picks them up from their original context and he puts them into the mouth of Jesus, and this is the third of them where Jesus says to his Father as he, as he is among his people, he says, Father, here am I, and here are the children you have given me. Fascinating thing is that the, the broader context of that uh, in the other quotations seem to be about Jesus preaching his word to us and Jesus being the leader of our worship. I will proclaim your name in the midst of the great congregation. I will sing your praises. And as I lead your people, as, I'm, as I am present among my people and leading their worship, as well as present in their individual lives and guiding them through life as the wonderful counselor and the mighty God, I'm, I'm looking to you, Father. I say, Father, here I am, and the children you have given me. Um, I'm sure one or two of you who have had the challenge of being at a graduation, maybe at the University of Oxford, 
At least the last one I was at, it was all in Latin. But there's kind of a moving moment in those graduations where the president or master of each of the colleges will, will bring in his or her children, the students who have studied in that college. And in the, in the poignancy of that, there's also a kind of embarrassing moment. Um, there are two embarrassing moments. One is for the scientists to pronounce the Latin. The other is, that if I remember rightly, the master or principal would take one of the one of the pupils by the hand and, as a token, present them all together. None of this et te, et te, et te that happens in Aberdeen probably still. And it's... I, I, I remember when I saw it, to me it was, I thought, wow, this is how it is with our Savior coming to His Father with us and saying, here, here, here are the children I've discipled for these three years. Here are the children for whom I'm giving my lifeblood, for whom I rise, as we were reminded, for whom I ascend, for whom I will reign. That's, that's the significance of the name. He is He is all the better a father to us because He was such a wonderful Son, and is such a wonderful son to his own father. Those of us who are older, do you ever find yourself in a situation where you think, how did I say that? Where did that come from? Now, this, is a, this is an older person's experience. And then you suddenly realize, you have a flashback. That's the way my dad did it. That's what he would have said. I'm the, I'm the spitting image of him. And that's what we see here. He is our access to knowing what the Father is like, because the significance of this name is that He is a, he is a Father to us. Well, let me encourage you to think secondly. You will think it's been a bad week, but I want us to think secondly, not about the significance of the name, but the magnificence of the name. And the magnificence of the name lies, I think, in the fact that this is not dominant language in the Bible. Father's not dominant language with respect to believers in the Old Covenant. And Jesus' fatherly relationship with us is not dominant language, even in the pages of the New Testament. But it's really fascinating to see the places where this language occurs during His ministry. And I think, now I didn't read through the whole of the Old Testament last week, and I confess I have not read through the whole of the Gospels this week, but I'm pretty sure, and if I'm wrong, and you can find other illustrations, then that's your Christmas bonus, okay? I think there are only four occasions in the Gospels where Jesus speaks to the disciples or to anybody in this fatherly way. Um, and it, it may be coincidental, although there's nothing coincidental, and even if it was coincidental to the writers of the gospel, it's useful to preachers um, it, to, to see the context in which this happens. The first of them is in Mark chapter 2, in the story of the paralytic man. 
that if you were brought up in church, you've known since Sunday school, even if you were given a book that didn't have any pictures of Jesus, it was kind of pretty much bound to have a picture of a, a broken roof and four guys staring down at the astonished crowd and uh, nasty Pharisees underneath and lowering their paralyzed friend to the feet of Jesus. And Mark tells us when Jesus saw their faith, well, what are they faith for? I mean, we could take a poll. I wouldn't be surprised if the poll said most of these guys had the faith that Jesus could heal their paralyzed friend, and that was why they brought him to Jesus. But Jesus saw that the man had a deeper need, didn't he? And his first words were not, take up your bed and walk. His first words were, would you remember what his very first word was? Son. <laughs> Somebody served me a coffee recently, and, and she, she put it down. She said something like, there you are, son, <laughs> or darling, or, or words of affection. And I thought, this is really weird. I'm sure I'm at least 25 years older than this lady, but, you know, um, Jesus was not an old man when he said this. He was around 30. And there must have been, there must have been something. When, when you were 30, some of you remember when you were 30, you, you wouldn't have said to a 28-year-old son, would you? Um, not unless you were about to. Son, I'll, I'll show you. Um, it's an indication that there was something about Jesus, just let's say his, his presence, his maturity, his very being, that meant there was something very natural about him saying to this paralyzed man, son, but then to say the word, son, your sins are forgiven. What was, I mean, Mark doesn't tell us, none of the gospel writers tell us what he was speaking into in that man's life, but it's clear that Jesus saw beyond the man's paralysis to his, his deepest needs, so that if this man never walked again, this man would have tasted something that would transform his life. And it's the, it's the term of endearment, it's the, it's the pathos, it's the affection, it's the bonding, it's the, it's the taking this man to himself in this word, son, son, I'm going to do everything a father, if there is anything a father could do for you. You know, we do that with our children, don't we? It's as though we will, I would, I would take your place, if taking your place would make your life different. And that's what Jesus is saying. He can only say, son, your sins are forgiven because he is going to take his place. And then the second instance, just a few chapters later on in Mark's gospel, in that marvelous section, I think in chapter 5, where beautifully combined are these two incidents that are linked together by the number 12, the, the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus who dies and Jesus raises her. And then in the middle of it, that whole story is split 
by another story where Jairus is trying to rush Jesus to his house in the hope that Jesus will be able to save his daughter, and Jesus stops and turns around and looks at the crowd and says, who touched me? And this woman, this poor woman, who has impoverished herself with uh, medicines and quacks who have not been able to cure her, suffering from the issue of blood for 12 years, Mark tells us she, when, when Jesus looked round, she, that obviously she felt, I've, I've got to tell him it was me. She had reached out in the crowd and touched him, and she felt she was healed. And, you know, from one point of view, that was maybe the most embarrassing thing that Jesus could have done to this woman. Like your, your, your bog-standard minister is not going to do this kind of thing if he knows something about you. He's not going to call you out in the midst of the congregation and say, whoever I'm describing here needs to come forward. So why did Jesus do this? There must have been a, must have been a powerful, compelling reason. And the reason's fairly obvious, isn't it? He wants to tell her that she is his daughter. And that's his first word to her, daughter. And he wants to explain to her, to her, to her real but fragile faith, that it's not the fact that she touched the hem of his garment that healed her, but that she was healed by, by whatever weak faith reached out to the saving power of the Lord Jesus. And he tells her to go into peace. And then the third instance is in the, in the upper room, where uh, the disciples are, are speaking to Jesus, and Jesus says to them, now children, this is the way we live in the family. And he exhorts them to love each other kind of beautiful, isn't it? Facing what he is facing, that he, he, he has any concern for them is absolutely extraordinary. But that what he's doing now in these last hours, he's preparing them for the future, and he's saying to them, now, children, children, now boys, The way we will live together as family is in love. I mean, it, it's unspeakably beautiful, isn't it? Because he's giving them the reason for the love. The reason for the love is not just that he is telling them to love one another. The reason for the love is that through him they have become children of his and therefore brothers to each other. And then the last instance is uh, uh, in John 21. You remember the disciples have gone out and uh, seven of them have gone fishing for whatever reason. They've gone out fishing, they've spent the night fishing, and they've caught absolutely nothing. And the way Jesus asks the question is so illuminating. He calls out to his children, you can hear his voice going across the quiet water in the morning, children. And the way it's phrased is, children, you haven't caught anything, have you? I don't know that it's that way in our English versions, but it really is that way. 
He's not asking the question in order to elicit information. He's asking the question in a way that he knows the information that the question is asking. Well, you haven't caught anything, have you? So try the other side of the boat. And they heave in this massive catch of, is it 153 fish or fishes, um, which has bamboozled the scholars for many a year why 153? Maybe because there were 153 and they just counted them. But it's this children. I wonder if you see what he's saying to them, because this was actually, this was something about his relationship with them that by that time they should have known, that he knew best about everything. He knew best about absolutely everything, including fishing, which was the one thing they knew more about than Jesus did. But he knew where the fish were hiding, and they were learning once again for the last time uh, in this part of his ministry that they could trust him with everything because he always knew best about everything. And even if they didn't understand why, they could always trust him. And that's the magnificence of the name. Now, the third thing, you'll notice that's only half the name, and Those of you who watch the clock will worry about the fact that there's a second half to the name and it's the word everlasting, Uh, but that will have no effect on the length of this sermon except to point out this, that if we've seen the significance of the name and the magnificence of the name, then just in order to keep the rhythm going, this tells us about the permanence of the name. What it tells us is he would be like that. He was like that but he also is like that, and he will be like that absolutely forever. It's a kind of equivalent of what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. The Gospels were yesterday for the author of Hebrews. He's the same yesterday, today, Today was the lifetime of the author of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that includes our lifetime. So this title is telling us that Jesus is all that we need. He knows what our deepest needs are, as He did with the paralytic, and He's able to forgive our sins. He knows the weakness of our faith, And He speaks to us. He calls us out of the crowd through His Word, spiritually, if not literally, to reassure us that the weakest faith in all the world gets the same strong Savior as the strongest faith in all the world. And He is able to save us And he stands among us and tells us we are his children and encourages us to love one another as brothers and sisters because we are members of his family. 
and he bid the disciples to put their nets on the other side of the boat because he knew best. He knew what was on the other side of the boat. He knew where the fish were, and he could be trusted even where they knew better. And that's why he invites us to trust him, because he is trustworthy. And that's why he encourages us, Isaiah does, through these words. When you come to know him, you come to know him as your everlasting Father, and he will be to you all you will ever need. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the fact that You are the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and that He mirrored Your fatherhood and His fatherhood of His people. We thank You that through Him we have come to know You as our Father, but knowing You as our Father, we have also come to know Him as the Son who has a paternal relationship and care for us, a perfect Father to us, knows our deepest needs, holds us in our weakness, is able to bring us together in mutual affection, and is one who knows not only the present but the future, and is in every sense one who can be absolutely trusted. And so we come to you, Lord Jesus, to trust you. And we ask that you would be with us. We pray this in your name. Amen.